Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, welcome back to another show and this week we've got another top, top guest. It's Andy Parslow. Andy's uh, had an incredible career in the game already. He's currently a headset piece coach at AFC Wimbledon, uh, first team. Um, but he started his career working at Luton and in the analysis departments, worked in the academies of Brentford and Watford and AFC Wimbledon. And now, like I said, uh, working at first team level as a, a specialist coach. Look, as myself, as um, a technical specialist, as a specialist coach, really interesting to see what goes on there, working at the highest level there as a set-piece coach and the success he has. He's got unbelievable stats, some of the best stats in the country. So he's obviously very good at what he's doing. He's just like a real top, top guy, top, top individual, an amazing mentality uh, of trying to be the best he can be and really interesting backstory obviously working at Brentford Academy a top academy of many amazing coaches like Danny Bach and Ozzy Asbangi and many of the, the other guys um, who came out of there and how that really helped focus his career and his mentality working that elite environment and um, being, being willing to challenge people and challenge himself to be the best that can be and that's really led to him to have such an incredible career so this is another fantastic show again like I said for myself really really interesting a great 60 minutes or so of chatting about football with someone that is at the very top of his game so this is one I know you're going to enjoy so without further ado let's get into the show so Andy Parslow welcome to the show thanks all thanks for having me on yeah, can you just give us a brief uh, outline of your playing and coaching journey up to this point? Yep, uh, playing experience is very limited. I was a very average forward when I was younger. Um, got to the age of about 17, 18, had to make a decision between either pursuing what would most likely be a very poor non-league playing career or try and make a better go of it in coaching. Um, so at the age of 18, I decided I'm going to um, pursue a career in coaching instead of pursuing a playing career. Um so that's my that's literally my experience in, in terms of playing. Then from a coaching perspective, my first job in football was after I finished university. Uh, it was a season-long internship with Luton Town as an analyst uh, with the first team. And then my coaching roles, my first coaching job in an academy was at Brentford, which was the season they shut down. Then moved on to Watford, then moved on to Wimbledon. And while I was at Wimbledon, I uh, became first team coach uh, from there. Like it, I love, I love it. I love the you know the people I'm interviewing. They give me a nice, clear, concise uh, little rundown. It's perfect. So let's just let's break. Let's just wind back then a little bit. Talk about your first role then going into Luton as analysis. That analysis role. What was that like? And how did that come about? And what was that like? So it was. Um, so I was at Bruno University studying sports science and coaching. And you get to sort of the end of your third year. And I've been doing my badges while I was there. So I got up to my level two from there. And I sort of came to the realisation in my third year towards the end of my, of my degree that there's X amount of people on my course at my uni, then there's the same amount of people on every other course at every other uni, all trying to get into the same industry and the same sort of positions. So I thought I need to do something that's going to make me stand out from the rest. Um, and this opportunity came up at Luton. It was just advertising, just advertising UK sport or something like that. And it was an internship. It was unpaid um, just to be the first team analyst. And I thought, might, might as well give it a go throw my application in I'm half decent and writing like a, a, a letter or, or personal statement or whatever um so I thought oh yeah I'll give it a go um thankfully I got that obviously I had to weigh up 
having a year of no paid work or no paid full-time work, I supplemented it with, with other work as well. Um, I went into that and as an experience, it was really good. It was, it was eye-opening. I was 21 at the time. Um, and I was obviously a similar age to a lot of the players and younger than a lot of the players. Um, and it was a real, yeah, eye-opening experience into what first-team football was like. Luton were in the conference at the time, uh, trying to get up to League Two. And um, really, I wanted to use it because it was an analysis role, but I've always been a coach and I wanted to learn about coaching. But I saw this as an opportunity to go in at a first-team level and see coaching firsthand. Um, obviously, Mourinho was an interpreter. There's various different things people do to try and get into first team roles. I thought this might be a way into just learn and grow and, and see what I can take from it. And uh, it was a, it was an interesting experience, an interesting year. Um, manager changed halfway through. Um, team massively underperformed in the league, but got to the fifth round of the FA Cup. Um, it was yeah, it was a real sort of up and down season, but a good learning experience. It may, interesting. Like wow, I was, I was just thinking, what amazing experience to jump right into first team football with your first with your first sort of job, even if it's like, you know, the internship, unbelievable, must have been unbelievable. Just tell us, were, were you, were you like worried maybe about going in as an analyst, an, uh, an analyst thinking, oh, if I, I'm, I've gone an analysis, I might never become a coach. I've heard this before. Some people say, you know, they may go in an, uh, and the, the analysis route and then maybe they, they struggle to, to transfer into the coaching route because they may, maybe they just, you know, make their role so successful. Did you have any anxieties about that? No, I wouldn't say anxieties. The, the way I looked at it, as I said, I was 21 going into it and let's uh, work in football until I'm 60. That's 40 odd years where I've got the opportunity to transfer from analysis over to coaching if analysis progresses from that. So looking at it as a long-term game rather than just what's happening right at this very minute, that was, as I said, it was a way in, it was nothing more. And if it grew, then it grew. And if I was able to transfer over to coaching early, then then even better. So, no, I wouldn't say I had any anxieties about it. It was um, it was more more an opportunity that I saw. Amazing! Like, what I'm, I'm just thinking, like, yeah, what was that like then? In reality, jumping straight into first team football. I mean, but what what were the main challenges about being in that environment? As um, quite a young man as well, quite a young man, 21, coming in, but, and also you know that old, you know, not coming in as some from professional football as well. I remember going yeah. myself coming to academy football, and you know, without having a great professional or any professional playing career, maybe you know, you know, as, as long as it's aside some of the people who'd been you know superstars in the game. I've got no issue with saying I got it wrong when I was in there in terms of how I um, how I operated on a work perspective, but how I um, I carried myself. I guess. So as I said, I was 21. I wanted to be a player. So when I'm in there with the other players um, and, we're, and they're a similar age, I want to be in the change room having banter with the players. I would like, And I didn't separate anywhere near well enough from the people that are my age and the people that are in my position. So really mm. what I should have done is separate myself from the players and be with the staff, obviously linking with the players and communicating and interact, etc. But not trying to live vicariously through the players and try and be like that. So I've, I've got no issue with saying I got that wrong. Um, and I'll give credit to my missus here because she told me at the time I was getting it wrong as well. Um, but that, that's it, it, that was part of the learning experience. I think um, it was difficult. So I, I wasn't sure entirely on what the role was going to be going into it. I didn't know if I was going to be standing at the front on a Monday morning telling them what they should have done better and what they did well in a game. And I thought, well, I'm in absolutely no position to do this. Um, I have no... I haven't really got any coaching experience. I've got Sunday league coaching experience and I've got zero playing experience. So how am I going to tell Andre Gray, for example, who was in, in the team at the time and obviously now plays, I think plays championship now for QPR. Um, how am I going to tell him what runs he should be making? I, I don't have this information yet. Turns out it wasn't that. It was more 
compiling um, analysis based on what the manager wanted. So he would tell me, I want all the examples of our final third entries or I want every time the opposition played direct from a goal kick and how we position for a second ball. And it was more, so the only real analysis I needed to do was work out what I thought he meant and see if I could use my eye to, to highlight good examples, poor examples, that sort of thing. So it was, mm. I was sort of taken out of the, the firing line to a certain extent. Um, but it was also difficult because I didn't know how to behave because like, I've, I've never been in a first team environment before and you can get some quite volatile people in first team environments, managers, assistant managers and, and, and coaches and players, of course, as well. And being yeah a young lad who hasn't been in the game at all, I didn't quite know how to pitch my personality, if that makes sense. I can be very direct and very honest and I learned quite quickly, um, certainly at that age, perhaps not to do that straight away, perhaps to um, find out what your environment's about and then sort of feel your way in. Um, so I've, I, I've found a lot of good learnings, but I learned from a lot of mistakes in that season. It was a great opportunity, um, yeah, sort of behind the scenes to see what things were about and, and, and learn from them really. Good and bad. So that's a great lesson for anybody, isn't it? If you get the opportunity, if you're lucky enough, I mean, that's an amazing opportunity to have. I mean, that's that's how you you know learn and get better, isn't it? Be you know sort of hit the hit the ground running and sort of you know it's, you sort of you got to deal with it or you don't deal with it, do you? So, I mean, but Without, having that at such a young age is fantastic. Exactly, and and like I said, it was because it was an unpaid internship. I knew at least fifty percent of the people that were on the the university cohort, or whatever, probably wouldn't apply for it. They probably look to go and get paid, but, and that's that's absolutely fine. I was in a position where I thought I think I can do this, and I can supplement work elsewhere to to make sure. I was, I was fortunate to have my parents help me out and that sort of thing as well. But I thought, no, this is going to give me an opportunity to, as you say, attach my name to a professional club, and then when in the future I apply for positions, there's a good badge on there already. So there's a badge that people recognise. Um, I think what was going to say on that one. Um, some train of thought there forgive me on this though um that's all right i forget where i was going to go with this well just just when we come back to that but i mean just tell us what what were you doing as well on, on the what was the other your, how were you earning money you doing other coaching on the side to get money or was it you just yeah you know, were just doing something or something else so when i was when i was at uni i was also um coaching part-time in schools so doing the, the, right. sessions, the yeah. after school clubs that sort of thing <clears throat> not with like a club's foundation or anything like that to be honest mm. when so I worked with a private company that went in and did that that sort of thing yeah. and whenever I saw the foundations of clubs doing it I didn't think it was very good what I, what I was seeing to be honest so I didn't really want to attach myself to something like that just because of the badge which is obviously in contrast right. to what I'm saying about Luton but that was a yeah. much higher up position but I did in terms of the quality of work I was seeing I didn't think it was quite up to the, to the standard that I thought it could be so I'd rather stay where I was where I felt as though I was developing and we took a little bit more a little bit more pride in it um, so I was doing that and I was also working behind a bar in a pub as well. So I had those sort of two things supplementing yeah. it and, uh, and yeah, feeding into it. So, so, so two, two, two things there, because obviously, as you know, same, you know, if I'm looking back to my early years, you know, you do that, you know, if you want to work in football, you the sacrifice you make is that you, like you say you work several jobs, often coaching jobs or this and that. And you work every weekend, your nights you're doing, you're putting in the hours to do that and then obviously you're working for free as well which is a big thing you know to get that break in the door how, how important do you think that is you know if you think about young coaches today how important do you think that is to say you know you, you know, you've got to be willing to you know sacrifice that to to go and get that big break I think if, you, if you're not willing to sacrifice things you, you need to find another passion you need to find another route because you, the, the, this game is that is what what this is about you, you have to put in the hard yards you've got to put the work in early on be willing to travel 
unpaid, no expenses, that sort of thing, to learn, to improve, to grow. Because firstly, it gives you a good grounding. But secondly, if you don't do it, someone else will. And that, that was my thinking with the, with the with the Luton thing as well, was if I don't do it, will someone else will come in and take it? Then they get, get that experience instead. So it's massively important for young coaches to be willing to go and do that. I don't know many, if any, coaches that start straight away getting paid. I'm sure people go in, volunteer. I went in volunteering Sunday League first and foremost with under, under 9s, under 10s. Um, and then you, you you grow from there. You, again, learn, do your badges, that sort of thing. And that, that reminds me now what I was going to say about the Luton thing. When I was there, I used that time to apply for my B licence and get onto my B licence because I knew being attached to a pro club, I had a better chance with the application and I could use yeah. the coaches and the players there to help me in terms of my knowledge and understanding. So when I was trying to remember what it was I was thinking about earlier, it was that. Yeah, that's great. another great point, isn't it? And it's also the environment, being about that environment. It's, uh, it's about you get yourself known. People say, oh, look, you know, Andy or there, you know, he's that guy. And you, you, that's the, that networking is priceless, isn't it? Because you get to go and, you know, prove yourself and put yourself about a bit. And then, you know, as you know, football is such a small industry, such a small world. When things come up, surely then, you know, then, it, you know, then, then your name's on maybe in the conversation. Is that right? Without doubt, it's, it's a small world and it's ever changing as well. So mm. where you work with a certain group of people here after two, three years, they've all gone off in different directions. Let's say you've you worked with five people. They've gone off to five different clubs. You've now got contacts at five different clubs. You go to a second club and that multiplies again. So you're constantly learning off of different people, interacting with different people, networking. But this also ties back into how you carry yourself and what your, I hate the word brand, but what your um, reputation, team, maybe. I guess, oh, how, yeah. how, how people see you. Every single interaction you have at every club you go to, you're enhancing or detracting from your reputation. Yeah. So when those people go off, they will say things about you and how you carry yourself and how you operate will determine whether they're positive or negative about you. So you've got to make sure in every interaction, whether you're talking with the first team manager or the under nines intern sports scientist, you make sure that every single interaction you're spotting in what you're doing, but also you're a good person because those people, you never know if that, that under nine sports science intern is going to end up at Man City's first team. You don't know where these yeah. people's journeys are going to go. So you've got to make sure you're, you're professional and, um, and like I said, a good person. Yeah, it gives you, gives you the opportunity and then, but then you've got a, the challenges to make sure you, you produce right all the time very interesting just let's, let's just what, what about coach from a coaching perspective also you're, you're doing work in the analysis where we get to watch the sessions on the grass the team sessions and stuff yeah so um as, as the analyst I, I sort of doubled up as the cameraman as i said Luton were in um yeah. in the conference budget budget was good for conference but still not huge they tried to cut corners where they could in terms of budget so yeah i filmed every first team training session i filmed every home and away game so i'll travel with the team so i got those match day experiences as well um so yeah i'll be there on the grass every day all weathers on the unstable ladder that they had trying to film the sessions and duck the balls when they went over the crossbar etc um so yeah i got a real real good um experience of of what it looked like day to day um and how things sort of grew from pre-season through to to the end of the season um and being in sort of the office as well i would be able to hear the planning and these sort of the conversations mm. that would go into devising the sessions picking the team etc so it was good to be a fly on the wall if if I'm being critical of it I wish I was a little bit older and a little bit wiser when I did it because I think I would have taken in more but at the time it was as I said a really good experience so what were the main takeaways from coaching perspectives obviously you know you're going in there as a level one level two coach you're applying for your OPB but I mean you know first team football is a million miles away from from those courses what what are the main things that you took away I thought oh you know as a working seeing those coaches on the grass I think one-to-one -one interactions. So, right. and this wasn't even necessarily just on the grass. This was in the office with one-to-one -one meetings and, and little chats here and there. But 
treating each player, although they're part of a collective, making sure you treat them as individuals, um, as their own person. And that's something that, that I picked up. Detail in terms of, so like Luton played fairly direct, they had a couple of big forwards at the time. And as I mentioned, Andre Gray played as well to run in behind. And I sort of looked at it, so this was around 2012 time. So when Barcelona were probably at their absolute best um, at the end of, of Pep Guardiola's era there, and everything, certainly in my brain, everything was was that style of football. And so I was going into Luton and seeing this, and I just always assumed we just lumping up to the big man and flicking it on. But I just saw a little bit more detail around second balls, around the type of run you make based on the trajectory of the of the ball when it's struck towards the forward. So little bits of detail here and there. I just I learned to look at things in a little bit more depth. Um, also, and this actually links probably into my role now, just a little bit more around restarts and set pieces, a little bit more detail around that throw-ins, corners, that sort of thing. Um, it just started to lay a little bit of groundwork. I wouldn't say there was anything in there that was absolutely revolutionary, but there are probably a few seeds that were planted that, that I've allowed to sort of grow since then. I think it's what you said there is really important, isn't that detail? Because you can't help but learn when you're in that environment around those, you know, first-class coaches, first-team environment, among the players, and you see them on the grass, seeing what they're not only how they're playing, but how the coach is talking about them, and those technical and tactical details which you pick up, which are prices. Tell us about then you go to Brentford. How did that come about and what happened there? Did you just go in just as it was going to close it down, did you? <laughs> uh, yeah, so in between in between there, I worked with um, with Wickham's Development Centre and, and Curva Coaching as well as I was getting my B licence and doing my youth modules and that sort of thing. I was a little bit naive in terms of academy football. I thought as though you couldn't get in the door unless you had your B licence and had your youth awards. Um, then finally, after I got both of those, I sent out a few emails. Stuart English got back to me at Brentford, invited me in. Um, and essentially, I just became part of the coaching staff. Then I realised that there were people still on their youth award going through their modules, people that were on their B licence. And again, if I had my time again, I would have gone and just asked the question earlier on in my journey, because the worst case scenario is to say no, in which case I'll, I'll go and find somewhere else instead. But uh, even to go and sort of shadow and learn for, for, for nothing, to go and learn off these people, it would have been would have been handy. So anyway, went in at Brentford. Um, so it was the 2015-16 season, first job in academy football. Uh, I wasn't assigned to an age group. I was just an academy coach. And something that I felt we did really well there is we made sure that every coach knew every single player in every age group. So when it came to retain and release at the end of the season, everyone could have a say with some knowledge about the, the player and, and about the person rather than just being down to one head coach and his assistant. So there was just a, a bigger pool of, of knowledge and understanding as a result, a lot more sort of uh, conversation and discussion about that sort of thing. So it was a lot more thorough. Um, so I went in. So on a Tuesday, for example, I was doing under 15s and under 16s in a sort of five-a-side hall in Osterley. And then on a Thursday night or a Saturday morning, I'm doing the under sevens pre-academy. And it just, it varied then on a Sunday, I'm taking the under, under 11s or the under 12s assisting one of the coaches there. So each group had a head coach for a double age group and then some assistants that would circulate around those groups as well. Um, that was a phenomenal experience for me because the environment that we had at Brentford was outstanding. Um, and you've had a couple of the coaches on the podcast, Danny Buck, I remember from, from a while back was on there. So the, the calibre of coaches there were was of a very, very high standard. And I thought, it's quite funny looking back now, I thought that was just academy football. I thought that was the case across the board. And I learned quickly that it wasn't after that. That was just, just the, the environment that we had at the time. We used to sit down for an hour, hour and a half after training sessions, just hammering each other's training, just hammering the practices. Any little detail that we could try and pick people up on, we'd pick people up on. This was spearheaded by Ozzy, Ozzy Abanji, who was the academy manager. Um, but And this was the mark of a good environment. 
when Ozzy wasn't there, wasn't present at the session, it would still carry on. That's how we knew we had good standards there and a good culture. Um, and just those little things. So you, you'd sit there after a session, you think you've had a half decent one, like everything flowed really well. You got some decent points across. You felt as though the players got better. You're feeling quite good. And then you go in the meeting room after and just something length of, a, of an in, length of an intervention, um, how quickly or efficiently you gave out the bibs at the beginning, how you introduced the session, anything, how long the drinks breaks were, anything that, that could be picked up on, you get hammered on. And you go away from that session where you felt quite good, feeling a little bit downcast from it, a little bit downbeat. But you come back for the next one and you're absolutely on it again. And it was just a way of keeping everyone on their toes and making sure that those things you get picked up on at the end of one session on a Tuesday, on a Thursday, they're spot on. But then there'll be something else. who's constantly pushing for better all the time. So that environment I found to be very, very progressive first and foremost, but probably the most elite environment I've been part of before. Yeah, incredible environment. Now, obviously, I know, I've known Danny but for many, many years, a very good friend of mine. And obviously, I know Ozzy, who I used to work at Tottenham with. I almost came to work at Brentford very closely uh, a couple of times. And yeah, it's full of like top, top coaches who've gone to work other places. And, and a shame, really, it got closed down because it's maybe sort of short sightedness from the, from the management because I'm unbelievable. Some of the players that have come out of that program as well, but an unbelievable. Uh, academy are punching above its weight and uh, really interesting. So tell us a little bit about then what I mean. What are the what are the major coaching things you, you took on board then from there from working with those those top coaches in that environment? You talked about obviously you know the you know, reflective nature and you know and looking at each other's decisions. But what person? What about you know basic on the grass things that you take away and improve and what are the main takeaways from that time at Brentford in terms of your coaching methodology? Okay, again detail was right at the forefront. So all the technical detail. Um, session design so making sure this will sound very obvious everything is logical everything makes sense you can you can answer the question why on everything that you're doing so why are you doing that why are you doing that you've got to have a reason behind it there's always a rationale behind what you're doing um, one of the biggest is something that I've taken through to, to first in coaching as well the importance of value of position specific training and this would tend to be from sort of under 13s upwards but the value of loads and loads of repetition of actions that the players need to do to fulfill their position as well as possible rather than your sort of generic team sessions that would tend to be like a possession session or end zone game or something like that things that are going to drill down and get these players loads and loads of goes at what they need to be good at so a fullback for example he's got to have 40 attempts in this session at blocking crosses at getting out to people getting your body position right getting your foot position right then getting your foot patterns right using the right foot to try and block the crosses everything that you need to do they get loads and loads of goes at it with success and with failure with people trying to beat them down the line people trying to cut inside people trying to overlap and using their mates to make it a 2v2 just as many different repetitions of of those actions as possible that was probably one of the biggest but even the the simplicity of the sessions like i think when I look back at what they were, they were just, and I remember uh, Bucky actually telling me about this. He said he would never, ever copy a session off of anyone. If he wanted to coach um, any sort of action, let's say, let's just say overlapping and crossing, he would look at whoever doing it at the weekend for, for Arsenal, for Tottenham or for Chelsea or something like that. And he would look at what happens for them to get into that position, what they need to do to um, create that opportunity and then what they do to execute the delivery. And that would become his session. So every, it's literally taken from the game into a training pitch and they'll get repetition at that. Now, obviously, not it, it can't be one exact circumstance every single time. It has to be a little bit of variety to it as well. But it was, you talk about game transfer, it was taken from a game. And obviously, it's scaled down a little bit to make it more age-specific if necessary. 
um, but everything was done based on real situations. So I think they're probably the main things that I took. Interesting. And so, you, you know, you've probably uh, cloud nine, you got your first academy job, you know, you, you're in an elite environment, then what, then you find out they're closing the academy. So then what happened after that? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, I didn't, didn't see it coming to fair. The thing is on, like on reflection, you look at where Brentford were then in the championship, very good academy, but not doing exceptionally as a first team. And now they're doing well in the Premier League. So you, it's difficult to argue against the decision, but as you said, there was so much talent there. I mean, one of them who wasn't taken by a bigger club until we shut down, picked up a Premier League winners' medal yesterday. So, and this is obviously before when, when this goes out, it's when Man City won the, won the, won the Premier League yesterday. Um, there were so many players there, and I found it very surprising that it all happened. But anyway, it happened. So from there, I'm thinking I've only had a year in this. I'm not like the lead phases and the, the head coaches here who have got a couple of years' experience of networks and got more experience of the games program, that sort of thing. I'm sort of back to where I was before. So fired out a few emails. I didn't really have any network at that point, um, but I ended up going to Watford. Uh, Watford was my my boyhood club um, who I supported as a kid. So I, I sort of wanted to do that. And that was a lesson of uh, head versus heart um, and probably going with head or, or should go with head more than heart. In this case, I went with the heart. Um, did three seasons at Watford. So I started as the under nines assistant. Then I went into under 11s head coach in my second season. Then in my third season, I was the under-13s, 14s head coach, um, but assisting the, the lead phase. Uh, so I did three seasons. How did, how did you get that job then? Did you just email in? Was it just uh, on networking? How did you get that break? Yeah, well, the, the, I was still doing the PE teaching at this point. So I, basically, I was, I was doing five days of PE teaching a week, and I was doing five evenings of coaching, and then obviously a game on a Sunday. So it was, there was a lot of coaching involved. So through that, I knew people from the PE teaching company that were also doing a bit of academy work. And there was one that was at Watford. So I spoke with him. He gave me the head of coaching's email. So I sent my CV across and they had some vacancies at the time. So I was able to able to get in there. So it was, yeah, it was just a case of using someone that I knew and, and obviously sending over my, my email and my CV. What were the main differences? You've just come from Brentford. What were the main differences going in? The, the compare and contrast experiences as you go into uh, Watford? Yeah, as I said, Brentford was an environment where it's the most elite environment I've ever been. And as I said, I naively thought that was just how academy football was. There's no disrespect to Watford, but I went in there and it wasn't that. So I went in and this is, again, something I learned about about my personality. And I was I was very happy that Brentford was sort of my formative experience as that sort of elite and quite ruthless culture because it suited my personality. And that sort of lay my foundation for how I operated in, in, in academy football. I went into Watford and it was a lot more laid back than Brentford was and soft is maybe the wrong word but I guess a little bit more casual but I went in with my same Brentford mentality and got a lot of very good feedback early on for the way in which I was working the, the quality of the coaching and the sessions and that sort of thing but something that I learned is that it's very easy to regress to the norm to the sort of the mean standards of of where you're in of your environment so something I learned very quickly is that you have to make sure you keep your standards where they're at and if you go into an environment where they're lower you've got to drag those people up with you you don't go down to where they are you either bring them back to you up to where you are or you leave them behind it's one of the two um so that was that was an interesting experience but what i liked about being the nines assistant there is that i had my own group on a sunday so i was able to lead a team on a sunday because it was two teams of, of seven asides um rather than being say the 11s coach who were doing nine aside and only had one and i was going in as an assistant there i, I was better off taking my own team um so one of the key key differences was um, as I said, environment. Second was probably curriculum of work. Brentford, I felt we were a little... So Brentford, we did futsal, we did position specific. 
we did nights on strengths and nights on weaknesses and we even had a session on a Friday which was voluntary for any player from any age group to just come into the dome and just come and work with a couple of coaches on anything they wanted to so there was that ownership for the players there as well at Watford it was a more of a rigid curriculum that we followed so we had our theme on a Monday night, we had our theme on a Wednesday night and we had our theme on a Saturday morning and then obviously the game on a Sunday. So it was just, yeah, it was a different way of working, had its pros and cons. Um, so yeah, probably the two, the two main things, environment and, and curriculum or work. It's I like the point you made there about, you know, keep maintaining your own standards or and leaving the other people behind. Look, you do, it's easy to regress there because the other thing people say, oh, you know, he's busy or he's this or he's that and just got to be focused on your own work and, yeah. You know, being as good as you can be, being, you know, world-class if you can, right? I'll tell you who never, never, ever labels people as busy are people who are organised and have high standards. They'll never label anyone yeah. as busy because they know that busy is sort of used as a, um, as a bit of a, a, a stick or a bit of a, a bit of a negative. It's, it's absolutely not a negative. It's getting your job yeah. done, being organised, making sure you're on time, making sure you're doing the best that you possibly can in any given moment. That's being busy. If that's busy, I'll take it. No problem. Yeah, and and obviously those those people are the ones who often you know do well in a game, don't they? And, and progress, which is obviously no no coincidence. Talk about talk about your uh, your first role in the head of elevens. What was that like? Then you get your own team, and you're you know you're you're now head of the, that age group. And what were the challenges and stuff revolving around that? I, I loved it to be fair. Um, so yeah, it was my first time really taking a team, and I had had ideas. Obviously, you're not going to reinvent the wheel or anything like that. But I had ideas that I wanted to to try out. Um, and I was, yeah, I was really pleased. I was very fortunate. I had a lead phase um, who I had a very good relationship with and would give me a lot of autonomy over what I was doing. So obviously you can't deviate too far from, from what the club wants you to do or anything like that. And I wasn't trying to, but I was given a lot more ownership. I wasn't really, not that I wasn't being kept an eye on because obviously they, they, everyone, like they still want to have a hand in what you're doing and stuff, but I was trusted basically. And I really liked that because I was able to do what I thought was best for the players um, and yeah, we had, we had a really good season. I was, I, it was a group I wanted to take because their reputation within the academy was quite poor. Um, the, the level of player wasn't considered to be particularly high. Um, and also the environment had been extremely soft the previous year. And I mean, they were as under 10s, you give 10 year old kids a bit of freedom to sort of do it. They'll run right. So I was able to implement better standards, better environment, better culture. And from that, was able to grow the football side of it as well, and, and it was a really productive and positive season. I was very pleased with it. What was the what were what were you expected to do? Give us a typical week you delivering. What was it? Did you have to do different themes on different nights? Was there a te- technical tactical cycle? How did that work? Yeah, so we, we had a curriculum. Um, there were you know the themes on different nights. So Monday, um, we had we had sports science, which as under 11s foundation phase looked a lot like tag games and, and that sort of thing. Um, then we did um, it was more of a technical night. On a Monday. Um, so again, similar to what I was saying with the position specific, we go through actions that are going to help players, um, help them to develop their control, their passing, playing off both feet, all, all that sort of thing. And one that I was really big on as well was scanning. Um, so not just the execution of a technical action, but the awareness around it as well. So the re- sort of the reason behind what they're, why they're doing what they're doing. Um, then on a Wednesday would be more of a defensive evening, so we look more out of possession. And then on a Saturday morning or Friday night, whichever one it fell on, that would be more attacking and more match prep is the wrong word, but more games based. And then obviously on a Sunday, we try and tile that together into, into a fixture. Give us an idea of then, what would you do on a Monday? Give some idea of what sort of session you're putting on. Typical session would look like, what sort of stuff, practices you're using. 
So as I mentioned, I, I worked for Curva um, when I was younger, so I, I used a lot of that sort of methodology. Um, so I would I would always do some ball mastery. Um, so we do, and again, I, I would try and do it to make sure it linked to whatever the theme was going to be for that evening. So for example, if I wanted to do in the um, to progress it on to, let's say one v ones with the defender to the side, I do lots of like hook turns, inside turns, that sort of thing. Just loads of that sort of ball mastery because it would then link to the practice I was about to do later on. So there was a thread running through the session. So it would tend to look like um, ball mastery, some like 1v1 actions, unopposed or semi-opposed. So if we did unopposed, I tried to always make sure there was timing in there. So it, like in terms of the technical detail, it wasn't just a case of, right, do a step over with your left foot and push off on your right. It was going to be you're dribbling towards a cone. I want you taking the ball slightly to your left as you go, because that would imagine if you visualize moving the defender just slightly as you go, then you throw in your step over, put your weight down, then you push off in the other direction. So there was relative detail to what was being done, and it was done without an opponent, but with sort of visualized opposition in there, if that, if that makes sense. So it would make the transfer a bit easier, and they get enough repetition to then do it in, a, in sort of an opposed situation. We then take it on to like a 1v1 or a 2v2 type practice, and then we put it into a small side of game after that. Interesting. And so let's go move on quickly into your, you get to the 13s and 14s. That's was that your lead phase as well, was that? So, no, they they, they changed the um, structure of the academy for that season and they did what Brentford were doing. and had double age groups. Right. And so they had a lead phase per double age group. Um, then under the lead phase was a lead coach and then there were two assistants. So I was given the lead coach role, so still part-time. Okay. Um, so on a, on a match day, the lead phase would take whichever of the two teams he wanted to and then I'd take the other team. Um, I had a lot of away fixtures that season, actually. Um, <laughs> you get the longest ones, you get the, yeah, exactly, the yeah. Ipswich away. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so, yeah, I was, it, it was a it was a good learning experience again. So um, the lead phase would dictate what he wanted. He would oversee all of the training sessions and be responsible for like the team selection and, and match objectives and that sort of thing. And then you would you'd execute some of the trainings that he, he would take a large part of it and then you do other bits around that with the two assistant coaches so it was a different way of working it was a bit more like working in a first team environment to be honest because of the the more sort of hierarchical structure um and yeah that's that, that's that's how we worked and, and and training would look different to how it was the previous year where we had a set curriculum it was more based on what they felt was needed um which again was was absolutely fine um, and it linked as we had a new academy manager that came in that season was sort of more linked towards the overall um, sort of methodology and strategy of the academy. Interesting. And so tell us about then, um, yeah, what was, were there any, I mean, you've had quite a nice progression there. You've got nines, 11s, 13s, 14s. Were there any, what were the main, you know, challenges working with those older boys? Any, any challenges or anything around that? Um, I knew them quite well, to be fair, because when I was, head coach of the 11s there was a um a gap in the ydp for assistant coach and so i used to just go and assist all the time so on the nights i wasn't working with the 11s i'd assist with the ydp um so again i was still doing five nights a week and on top of the five days of, of, of PE teaching um so i knew those players really well so the transition was quite easy um and going in as a head coach was was quite easy well even underneath a, a lead phase um so challenges i guess you're going from seven aside football so, so seven and nine sides we did both at under 11s um into 11 v 11 football so that was one thing i think the physical side of things was another thing and there was a challenge just trying to i mean i've got a degree in sports science so i had a rough idea and obviously i had done or was doing my advanced youth awards so they had the physical module where they talk about maturation as well but 
it's one thing learning about that in the classroom. It's another thing dealing with it on the grass and dealing with it on match days and that sort of thing and seeing the differences in, in opposition and stuff. Um, so they were probably the main challenges dealing with the, the physical side of it. I'll be honest, a challenge for me as well was going from being the lead coach of my age group where I was able to pretty much run it how I wanted to, to go in and assisting someone and being sort of directed to. That was a challenge in itself and something I needed to be better at than I was. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that, the physical side of it, um, but yeah, were probably the main things. So then, so then tell us about you leave Watford and then your next roles is your the next coaching roles is, is Wimbledon, is it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, so I left Watford uh, 2019 and joined FC Wimbledon with the under-13s. Um, there were eyebrows raised at the, the at the move because obviously the club, Watford were Premier League club, FC Wimbledon League One in terms of the first team, um, Cat 2 to Cat 3. So there were a few surprises um, or a few people that were surprised about it. Firstly, I was let go from Watford because, as I mentioned previously, about being very direct and very honest, um, I was in an environment at Brentford where that was very welcome and you could have those discussions, didn't matter who you were talking to. At Watford, it wasn't quite the same. And Again, this is where I said I needed to be better in terms of how I managed my personality with people. I would still maintain that sort of honest discussion and if I think something is not good enough and needs to be better I'll say it doesn't matter if it's the academy manager or, or my own assistant it doesn't matter that wasn't quite as well received there so at the end of the season it was a case of well you're not working how we want you to do off you go all right no problem um I was also yeah. having a I, know, little- I know I know I know that feeling by the way when you get maybe yeah. you rattle a few cages where because football can be very you know say conservative and you know in terms of you know you come from a different environment and they don't if you're not maybe really towing the line or you know exactly or just saying yeah everything's great then you're suddenly a bit of a problem aren't you it, it's true and it's I think it's so counterproductive because the only reason I, I can't speak for everyone that, that, that operates like this but the only reason I do the I, I speak the way I speak and, and I'm direct is I want the solution the outcome that we end up with to be the best it could possibly be and if I'm being presented with something and I think well I think this can be better I'll provide that opinion and someone might come back with an answer to what I'm saying that renders my opinion incorrect and that's fine we've got to a better solution but it might be i can add some value here and I'm, it might be that i'm going to say something that you haven't thought of and if you can't actually back up what you're saying when i challenge it maybe what you're saying isn't good enough so it's only able to get to a better solution to get to a better outcome and it's you would think that would be a positive thing but football as you said it's very conservative and could be a little bit precious at times um and yeah that, that was just the outcome but that's football it, it is what it is so, um, yeah, I ended up going to AFC Wimbledon because I knew that was an environment where my personality would be welcome and I'd be able to do what I wanted to be able to do. I went in as a head coach of the under-13s. Um, so 11 v 11 football where I'm able to, to run things as I want to. Again, still under the umbrella of what the, of what the club want. You're not, I'm not going to deviate and reinvent anything. But the, the sort of principles we worked by were a little bit broader rather than being... A, other clubs they can be extremely specific and you try and do it word for word and follow everything to the letter it was a little bit broader so there was a bit more re- room for freedom for me at, at Wimbledon and had a like wonderful season unfortunately it was cut short because of Covid um, but even during the during the, like the, the the Covid break still work, still interacting with players so we had a WhatsApp group of players and staff and parents so sending in I, I used to do um, like a little skills challenge in my garden every day send a video through to the to the WhatsApp group and the players would have to go off compete sort of do their own version of it, send the footage back into the, the group before a certain time. And the player that did the most repetitions in the quickest time or something like that won the prize for the day or went through to the next round of it or whatever. So just did loads of little things, but having the freedom to do that when you're given that freedom, 
it allows you to be more imaginative and be more creative. If you have to constantly toe the line and, and do what you're told all the time, you don't think of those sorts of things. So it was a great opportunity for that. Then I stayed with that team into under-14s. Um, again, had a really good um, start to the season. Really enjoyable. Uh, to be honest, just being back on the grass after the, the COVID break was, was wonderful in itself. But great being back with that group of lads. And then midway through that season, um, I got pulled up to the first team as a, as a set-piece coach. So how, how did that happen? Obviously, Robbo, was it? Robbo, yeah. Robbo goes into the first team. So Robbo knew you from knew from the academy and brought you in. So, so what was that like? What experience have you had in, in doing set-pieces before that? Very limited, and and I have to say, it was, I I never got into the football intending to be a set piece coach. That that wasn't my that wasn't my um my objective. Um, I talk about freedom and broader principles and being able to do things. I I've always liked set pieces, and the group that I was working with, I felt as though sort of because we had a we had a, a dedicated match prep period in a session. So on a, on a Friday evening or Saturday morning, you'd have time for for match prep where you can work through how you're going to press, how you're going to play, that sort of thing. I always kept 10 minutes at the end for set pieces just to try something different because you get sort of seven or eight corners in a game, for example, and I just didn't, I couldn't understand why you wouldn't have a strategy Why, rather than just sort of putting the ball in the box and hoping for the best and the biggest player heads the ball. I thought if we can try and work something out, it's just like the, the buzz the players get when a set piece comes off is unbelievable. Like at those, even at first, mm-hmm. but at those ages. And um, so it just gets the players excited. So, that was my only experience. I tried things out. We got quite a lot of success from it and of things coming off and reputation just started to build within the club. Um, Robbo was pulled up to the first team, but I think Wally Downs brought him into the first team fold. And then uh, Wally Downs left, Glenn Hodges got the job and Robbo um, just pulled me in one day and said, um, what do you think about being set piece coach? And now like a lot of coaches that get into coaching first and foremost, you want to be at first team level. You obviously you work through working with kids and, and do everything you can at, at those ages. But in the back of your mind, it's always I'd love to work with the first team and work in a stadium with a like full capacity and that sort of thing for three points. So I'm given that opportunity. I'm not going to say no. It doesn't matter if I think I'm good enough to do the job or not. I'm not going to say no and I'll make sure I get good enough for the job. So I said, OK, Robert didn't have um, the authority at the time to make that decision. But he wanted to know if I was on board before he spoke to the manager about it. He spoke to the manager and then COVID hit lockdown. So I said, no football, nothing. So I used that period in, in lockdown, as well as things like the skills challenge, like I said, I thought I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into set pieces here and I'm going to make sure if this does come about, say in six months time, I'm ready to go and I've got good knowledge. So I just analysed everything from the league, everything about Wimbledon and other clubs, got a load of stats together. And then I spoke to Robbo and said, um, I've got a presentation. Um, would you like to see it? So I showed him, really excited. So he got the manager on Glenn Hodges. Um, I presented it to him as well. Liked it, sort of could see the value in it. The problem was Wimbledon are a team that scrapped relegation in League One, obviously failed this season, but scrapped relegation in League One and the manager usually takes responsibility for the set pieces. He didn't want to relinquish control to an untried, unproven young coach who's just come up from from the academy who's had a few corners of work under 14s. Completely understandable. There was definitely reason for an appointment because Wimbledon were the worst in the league for set pieces for attacking and second worst for defending. So scored the least, conceded the second most. Um, so there was definitely a reason why this could happen, but it wasn't the time. As well as that, club finances weren't the best because of lockdown. So they're looking to get rid of staff rather than bring staff in. So no problem. Carry on with the 14s. Glenn Hodges then lost his job. Robbo gets the job and then I get, get, get moved up from there. Amazing. So then Robert brings you in, brings Steve Salas, one of my 
good pals in to yeah. work with the psychology with the players. Got a lot of specialist coaches. Yeah. Um, interested in that, isn't it? So before we, let's before we go into that, let's go just talk about the practicalities of your job and go in there. What was you're back in the first team environment again? You know, many years after that initial experience was you know when you were 21 at Luton. What was the main what the main differences? I suppose you're you're older, you're more mature, you've got experience behind you. What are the main you know contrast comparing contrast those experiences? I think it's exactly that. I was older and more mature, and I knew who I was. I wasn't trying to be anything that I was. I wasn't trying to be a player. I'm. I'm in there as a set piece coach. As I said, it was never my objective, but that's what I'm doing now, and that's what I'm going to give, give my absolute best to. In terms of comparing and contrasting, so I'm working at League One instead of the Conference. The level's higher. Um, the size of the clubs in League One is incredible for for the, what is essentially the third division. Your Sheffield Wednesdays, your Sunderland, your Wigan's, uh, several others that. I'm, can't think of off the top of my head, but massive, massive clubs in there. So you're working at a level that is challenging. And I've still had the same sort of feeling that I had at Luton of how are they going to take me as someone without a playing career, someone that's just come up from youth coaching, has never coached at, at pro level before at first team level. But I'm going to go in and tell these players what I think they should be doing to attack and defence set pieces. So there was... Not trepidation, but a little bit of a little bit of anxiety going in. I think um, just sort of saying I've got to make sure I'm I'm spot on here. And again, I've got no issues with saying didn't get it right straight away at all. Um, I was then this one in terms of my personality and how I worked. It was more my knowledge and my understanding. So that I, I learned again from mistakes as I went on. I had some good ideas and there were things that worked and things that didn't. But I had to grow as as, as I was going each day. And it was sort of like on every sort of um, podcast of it with anyone really they talk about going outside your comfort zone this was bang outside my comfort zone so although it was doing something that I felt I had reasonable knowledge about I'm talking about it with people that I know for a fact know a similar level and have worked with other coaches at much higher levels that maybe do things differently um so there was there, I had to be a lot sure of myself I had to make sure that I was putting a huge amount of work into what I was doing to make sure that whatever I said if there was any challenge to it I was ready to go with a with, with a solution or with backup to, to why I was doing what I was doing. So I think the quality and depth of my work was one of the key um, contrasts to to when I was at Luton. As I said, I was older and, wise, and a little bit wiser and more mature in terms of what I was doing, how I was operating. Um, and then, yeah, just the level of the level of challenge, I guess, is probably the other main difference. And so tell us about like your typical working week. How did you how do you fit into the to the that weekly cycle as a specialist coach like that? So with, with, when Robbo is in charge, I'm an A-licensed coach as well. Obviously, having worked in, in the academy as a general first, like um, head coach, I've done all my badges and that sort of thing. So I'm up there not just as a, a specialist in set pieces, but I, I can coach as well. Like I'm, 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 not, I'm not bad on the grass. So I was focusing on the set pieces, but I was also ha- helping with, with training in general as well. So when we did position-specific work, I'd take the midfielders, for example. If we were doing I don't know, a possession practice of some sort, I might oversee one of the teams or I might manage the practices. There'd be something. So I would always be down at training every day, regardless of if we're doing set pieces or not. In terms of my own work as, as a specialist, I was naive going into it. I wanted three new routines for every single game, which made sense in my head because I thought, well, no one would be able to predict what we're going to do because we keep changing it. Then I realised in League One, you play 46 league games, you play Papa John's, you play Carabao Cup, you play FA Cup, and the players have an awful lot to think about in general anyway. <laughs> It doesn't the players work. Players won't know what they're doing either. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So they'll they'll try it, and and players they were so receptive to what I was trying to do, so they tried it. But because the depth of what you've done just isn't 
you haven't spent enough time because there isn't enough time because they've got other things they've got recovery mm. and that sort of thing um they couldn't do what i needed to the level it needed to be consistently because there wasn't enough practice and t- like something would just be off the time would be off you think about it, it's 85th minute of a league one game it's one one players are run ragged throughout the game they get to to the corner oh it's, this is the third routine of the second game we've had this week and um, this is my movement and by the time they thought about what it is they're meant to be doing corner's gone the, the timing's off yeah. it's not perfect because there's too much going on so i had to make sure i simplified it and that was the biggest lesson i learned was was simplifying what i was doing to make it as straightforward as possible while having still a little bit of um a uniqueness to it as well to try and keep things fresh so it's a long way of saying what my working week was but that was the plan going in um three new routines then realized quickly couldn't do that so i moved from specific routines to principles so our principles would remain the same throughout each game from an attacking and defensive perspective. We would just make tweaks based on the opponents, try and attack their weaknesses and try and, uh, and limit their strengths where possible as well. So let's say, for example, it was Saturday, Tuesday. On a Monday, players would have um, probably cryotherapy in the morning. We'd do a brief review of the, of the previous game at the weekend and then we'd preview the opponent. I would always do a set-piece meeting in addition to the preview because I wanted the players to see why I was suggesting what I was suggesting. So if I'm going to say, right, we're going to do these three corners that attack the back post and they'll say, yeah, but if we keep doing that all the time, well, the keeper's just going to come and claim. But if they've seen the footage or the clips that I've presented beforehand that show actually this is where they're particularly vulnerable, the keeper doesn't like coming to claim, he's, he's not very brave and this is where they're going to be weakness because of their structure, they can say, okay, I see why we're doing it. Then when we go and practice it, you get more buy-in. So again, this goes back to what I was saying with um, back what I learned at Brentford, having a why behind everything that I was doing, having a rationale behind everything, it gets better buying. So we do the, the set piece meeting, then go out and train and set pieces, obviously be bolted on to the end of that. In a Saturday to Saturday weeks, a no midweek game, things are a lot more, um, a lot slower and you can go at a calmer pace and probably have more detail as well. So that might be where I do throw in something brand new, like a new short corner or a clever free kick or something. Um, because you've got the time to sit down with players individually, go through some ideas, do some run-throughs unopposed on the training pitch. And then by the time you come to the training on the, the match day minus one, then you can do it in real time. And they've had enough repetition throughout the week where they can do it to a more consistent level, um, but still having a hand in all the training as well. Then, unfortunately, Robbo lost his job um, around about March, April time. New manager came in with an assistant. So we had a huge coaching staff by that point by Wimbledon Standards. From that point, it was just, Andy, you just do set pieces, we'll do training, so fine. So I didn't need to go out to training each day. So I was able to do a lot more in-depth stuff on the set pieces, but I did miss being out on the grass and doing bits and pieces here and there as well. So I still found myself down there every now and then. Um, but my week, would be, I was able to get a lot more work done in terms of my preparation at work um, with the new manager, whereas beforehand, because I was doing other things as well, I would do a lot of my prep at home, sort of between half four and seven o'clock in the morning. That's when I do loads and loads of prep because then when I go into work, I can be what I need to be to help out from there. So it was it was a very congested um, working week for the majority and then it was a little bit slower towards the end of the season. Interesting. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, when I was, I was lucky enough to work at Arsenal a bit with the 18s as a specialist technical coach and what I've seen, um, big shout out to Terps, who does the set pieces there, also does as a goalkeeping coach. He, when he, you know, and I've been there in a game, I, you know, and, and then the coach says, oh, come on, Terps, there's a corner here, you know, who should be where, or, you know, that sort of thing. It's quite, you know, you've got to jump up and be alert and stuff. I mean, what's that like when you're playing in front of, you know, five, 10,000 fans or whatever like that? Is that, feel the pressure coming down on you or what? Um, a little bit. Uh, I was fortunate in the season when I got the role, 
football is played behind closed doors. And this, right. remember I said that I learned from mistakes and I I can't say I didn't know what I was doing because I didn't know what I was doing, but I wasn't I wasn't the level I am now when I started. I was nowhere near. We didn't score for about 11, 12 games from a set piece from when I got the job. And having no one in the stands made that a little bit easier because mm-hmm. I guarantee I would have been getting else's from, from, from my fans for not producing. Because it's one of those roles where it's very clear when you succeed and it's very clear when you don't. Either you score or you don't, or either you concede or you don't. So it's very, very binary, very objective. So not having that pressure around was quite helpful. I was fortunate then towards the end of that season behind closed doors, we scored quite a few goals and we stopped conceding them as well. And then this season, the beginning of this season, we scored a hell of a lot of goals. So the crowd were, were with me. So I actually, I thoroughly enjoyed the pressure. So I used to stand up for every set piece. Um, so the assistant manager, Rob Tudor, would sit down and I'd get up and I'd try and orchestrate and direct as best I can. Now, when you're at Stadium of Light and there's 40,000 people there and they're, they're screaming and shouting and booing and stuff, from the penalty box, the players cannot hear me. So that's when you realise that your prep during the week has to be of such a high level that on a match day, they can sort of take on instruction from you without you speaking, just from certain signals. For example, if I hold up four fingers to my centre-back, he knows what that means. That means he's going to go to the near post or it means he's going to go to the far post. So that prep has to be spot on. So when we go there, we've got that opportunity to um, to still work to, to, to the level without the players thinking what am I meant to do. Um, so, no, I really enjoyed the, enjoyed the pressure from it. Um, it's not fun when you stand up for a defensive one and we can see because, again, all the eyes are on you as you go and sit down again. But it's just part of the job. It, it is what it is. Um, but no, I, I, I quite like the pressure from it. What was And then going back to what we talked about previously, you know, previously like I said, I work as an individual, like a technical specialist, you know, mm-hmm. specific stuff. And uh, Steve Salas is the head of like, psychological aspect. Do you, do you think the game's moving that way now where, you know, we're going to have much more... Sp- you know, specific, you know, uh, multidisciplinary team, if you like, and not only at first team level, but academy football as well. I think so. Certainly at first team level, um, I think the, the the differences in the game could be so finite. You look, you look at the Premier League this season, for example, like the, the swing on the final day and that sort of thing. You look back over the 38 games, there'll be other games where teams have dropped points based on small little details and having a specialist in to deal with those details, whatever they are, could make the difference between winning the league or not, between qualifying for the Champions League or not, qualifying for Europe or not, staying up or not. So tying in those differences, Leicester, for example, I think over 50% of the goals they've conceded this season set pieces, and they finished maybe four points off of Europe. I guarantee mm. if you even halve that, they're in Europe. Guarantee it. So focusing attention on those little things, it can make a massive difference. I do see the game going that way. I know that like the clubs with almost unlimited budgets. They've got all sorts going on in terms of, of specialists and that. Um, and clubs lower down the pyramid sort of need to find a way to get these people in um, to benefit from them, obviously, without without smashing the budget too much. Um, but I, I certainly see it going that way. Academy football as well. I think on a, on a physical um, side, I think we, from an academy perspective, do that quite well. So obviously you have your sports mm. science and conditioning coaches, um, you get movement coaches in, you get like multi-sport coaches, that sort of thing. I do think, think but they tend to be internships, unpaid internships as well. Um, I do think we're, we're going the right, sort of the right direction with that. I definitely think that will transfer to, to first-team football as well. It's rare in League One or Wimbledon League Two now to have a specialist set-piece coach, certainly to have a performance mindset coach. Uh, we had a subs coach as well earlier in the season. Um, it is rare, but th- that's that's what, what Robbo is like, for example. He sees things for marginal gains and tries to, tries to take advantage. Yeah, the is in academy football there, you know, 
S and C type, it's always been there, hasn't it? But then the coach is supposed to do, you know, everything. So whether I mean you talked about the position specific stuff with Brentford, you, know, you go to you go abroad, a lot of the clubs will do a lot of position specific uh, work, you know, particularly in the age of groups, maybe having like, you know, specialist coaches from each position, potentially, you know, the way forward is interesting. What about yourself then? I mean, you talked about you, you like being on the grass. What 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 do you, you know, what would the future hold for you? Do you see yourself working as like a first team manager, that sort of thing, or head coach? Eventually, yeah, that, that would be what I'd like the end goal to be. Um, as, as, I, as I said, I, well, I'm 31 now. I hope I'm going to have a long career in the game. At 31, I like to think I'm not near the end of that. So there's plenty of time for me to get experience, to transfer over, to perhaps eventually become a head coach or manager. My outlook on it now is different to how it was before. Before, So, for example, when I, when I was at Watford, for example, it was always... Right, I'm in the I'm in this I'm the under 13s, 14s coach now. Really, I want to be the 18s coach. And I would work thinking I want to be the 18s coach. What I've learned since and what eventually got me the job here at Wimbledon in the first team is to do the best I possibly can in the job I'm in at the moment. And then opportunities will present themselves. So I became set piece coach of Wimbledon first team set piece coach by being the best under 13s and 14s coach that I could be with my players. That's what then got me, got me sort of noticed and, and eventually got pulled up to the first team. I wasn't trying to become the women of first team set piece coach, that wasn't the objective, but it happened as a result of the work. So if I do the best I possibly can in the job I'm at in at the moment, so women's first team set piece coach, then potentially in the future, more opportunities will come out from that. And, you know, there's only, as they say, there's only one guarantee in football, you know, you're going to get the sack one day. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So what, what's that like? And, you know, as a, as a, with someone with a family, married, married man, I see a wedding ring there. What's that like in terms of, the is that you know because academy football can be similar but obviously it's just more heightened at first you know wasn't it so i mean what's dealing like dealing with that anxiety i mean it just must because it just comes with the territory it does come with the territory it's it's not easy because it's the same whether you're in the premier league or ever in league one or league two the level of patience in football is extremely low so you're only ever a couple of games away from being in trouble and then a few more games from, from getting the sack now for premier league managers that earn millions a year it's not that obviously no one wants it to happen, but if it does happen, they'll be all right. The payoff will be all right. Further down the pyramid, that's not the case. So it there is that level of anxiety. I got married recently, also had a little girl earlier in the season, our first kid, and that does does play on your mind a little bit. Now it, it depends how you use it. You can use it as sort of you can be scared of it, or it's motivation to make sure you do the best you possibly can. Now, my stats from this season, season just gone. Obviously, Wimbledon got relegated. Personally, my stats were very good. We scored the most wide free kicks in the country. For your joint first week with Northampton, we scored the, I think it was the highest ratio from set pieces in, in the division. Personally, from my department, we had a good season. So using sort of that pressure to increase the quality and depth of your work to hopefully promote a better outcome on, on the weekend, that's how I'm going to use it as, as motivation. As you said, it's the only guarantee in football. So if it's guaranteed at some point, what's the point in worrying about it? You might as well use it as best you possibly can to do the best work you can. And I suppose, like we said earlier, you know, just do the best job you can, you know, do what, do what you can do and, you know, and, you know, control, you can only control the controllables, right? Exactly. Exactly. Do the best you possibly can. Opportunities will present themselves. So, so what would you, what advice would you give to a young coach aspiring to have a career in a game? You've been, you've done 10 years now in the game. You've had an unbelievable career already. You've got another, 29 years left by the, by your all accounts of your, 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 your body, your, your work clock. What advice would you give to a young coach trying to, you know, make a name for himself in academy football and then maybe first team football? I think firstly, put the work in. 
um, and make sure your perception of what hard work is, is a good one. Because there'll be people that say, oh, I'm working hard. And in reality, compare that to someone else and they're working nowhere near to the level that they could be working. But your perception of what hard work looks like is really important. But put the work in. If that looks like getting up at four in the morning, putting in three hours work before you go to work and then doing more work in the evening, that's what you've got to do. Because as, as I mentioned with the university thing, there are so many coaches in the game or not even in the game that want to get into it, want to get into academy football. What's going to get you the opportunity? You've got to make sure you put the work in so you know your stuff. You've got to know your craft. And you meant, I mentioned earlier, I don't like the word brand. People talk about building a brand and that's mm. fine. But you build a brand by the quality of your work, not just by what you portray on social media. So I'm not on social media other than LinkedIn. I don't have it because I would rather use my time to focus on my work, to make sure I'm doing the best I possibly can, putting those hours in. And then my brand will grow based on the, the results you see at the weekends. So I'd say put the work in and make sure that work is good quality work. And as I said, the perception of, of what hard work is, is as high as it possibly can. Second one, be honest all the time with yourself and with other people. So you know when you've had a bad session, you know when you've had a good session, when you've had a bad session, learn from it. When you've had a good session, work out how to improve it. Don't ever set, like settle for it. There's no such thing as a perfect session. Learn that at Brentford because I thought I'd had, had a good session. I came off and I said to Ozzy, I think I've had a good session. And he said, was it perfect? And straight away, I haven't got a response because I can't say yes because he isn't going to say no. So I've then got to find ways of, of, well, what could have been better. So always make sure you're drilling down, being honest with yourself. And like I said, be honest with other people. So I can only speak for my personality, but I've, I don't think I would have got to where I've got to so far. And by the way, I'm nowhere near where I intend to get to, but it's where I'm at at the moment. I don't think I would have got to this stage without being direct and honest with people and having, I guess, the balls to actually say to people what I think and to drive high standards. I think there are a lot of yes men in football. You go on a go on a coaching course, go on an A license or a B license. You put on a session. It's very rare you put on a very good session on an A license, like on the course when you've got the other coaches, your players, and that sort of thing, because it's false. The players aren't players, that sort of thing. But you walk off the grass and you say to the other coaches on the course, "What did you think?" You get the same answer every time. I thought it was great. I thought it was brilliant, mate. Well, oh, fantastic! Like top top draw. You know it wasn't. You know, there are several things that should have been better, but people don't have the personality to say what they think. And that, yes, that um, that positive feedback that's false is so much more damaging to you than actually your ego taking a little bit of a hit by someone saying, I don't think that was good enough. I thought this was way off it. Obviously, specific detailed feedback. Um, so having the personality to say that and be like that around people, whether they're senior to you or younger than you or whatever, I think it stands you in good stead because you might piss a few people off but you're going to get to a better solution and you're going to get to, um, to to higher standards as a result. So putting the work in, being honest as much as possible, I guess enjoying it as well because it's good fun. Andy Parslow, thanks very much, mate. It's been top. Cheers, all. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's dynamic ball mastery program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game.